Well, if you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to the book of Esther today. We're going to spend two weeks going through this entire book, so there are going to be parts that we fly over for sure. We're not going to be hitting every detail as we go through, um, but then as soon as we wrap up Esther, the plan is to spend the summer in Proverbs and then jump into Mark in the fall. Um, so Esther chapter 1, verse 1, this is one of the greatest stories in the Bible. It speaks to us in a lot of ways, so let's just get right into it. It says, now in the days of, and by the way, this king, there are 10 different ways to pronounce his name, so I'm just picking one and running with it like it's right, okay? So, so I don't know if you've already always heard it some di- way, different way. That's probably right too. But it, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The armies of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cord of fine linen, and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of pophyry, or something, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the story starts with one of the greatest parties ever thrown. It's a 180-day party, and the point of this party is for the king, who apparently has a pretty fragile ego, to bring all of his wealth, everything that he owns, parade it in front of people so that they can see how awesome he is. And so he has this 180-day party. At the end of the party, the king says, you know what I'm in the mood for? A party. And so he has then a seven-day party. And in that seven-day party, he does the same thing. It's a big parade, a big celebration of the king. He brings out his wealth, and everybody is really impressed with him. Everybody apparently but the ladies, who, according to this passage, apparently they didn't want to hang around a bunch of drunk guys who are drooling over the king's car collection. So they are having their own party in another place somewhere else. And then at the end of the party, the king's sitting around, and he's a little bit buzzed, and he says, hey, you you think all my wealth is impressive? Wait till you see my wife. So verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, this is going to be hard to relate to because in their culture, these men, they got their sense of worth from the amount of money that they had. And these men objectified women. Seriously. Like, that's the way it was back then. And I know we've come a long way since then and things have really changed. Sometimes we read the Bible and we say, man, how does this relate to our world today? It's hard, but we've got to all wrap our minds around it. This is actually the way that they used to think. Um, So here's what Vashti does, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So Vashti hears, hey, listen, the king's paraded all of his stuff in front of the people. Now he wants to parade you in front of the people. 
And she says, like, go get something attractive on and walk around in front of thousands of drunk guys to make my husband look good? No. So she says no, and this king is enraged. This is a culture that's a shame and honor culture. And he's just had 187 days of a really expensive party, all devoted to make him look awesome. And at the end of it, the pinnacle of this party is supposed to be Queen Vashti comes out and struts her stuff in front of everybody, and that's going to make him look really impressive because we all know when you see a guy with a really attractive wife, you know that he's a guy with good character. Um, Or he's loaded. And so... (laughs) So he says, this is the moment. You guys are going to be really impressed with me. And she's going to come out and she says, no, I'm absolutely not going to do it. So 187 days of trying to impress everybody are shot. They're gone. And he becomes enraged. And he says, this is a crisis. This is not the way this party was supposed to end. So he calls his cabinet together and says, what are we supposed to do? Verse 16. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who've heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So they say, King, this is a crisis. When word gets out that Vashti wouldn't do what you wanted, our wives aren't going to do what we want either. And that's a major problem for these guys. So they have to to act really severely. Verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memucan had proposed. So they say, king, you've got to make an example of her. You've got to show everybody that a wife who does that just doesn't even stay a wife anymore. So the king says, yep, that sounds right, let's do it. Let everybody know I am never going to look at Vashti again. There's going to be some severe punishment for this. So then immediately they say, okay, well, there's got to be a queen. We've got to come up with a way to replace her. So these guys, you know, the men of character that they are, they say, well, there's, there's one way to find a good wife for a good king. We need to, to get out Proverbs 31. We need to make a checklist of all these virtues that, that a good woman will have. And, uh, and once we have this list of virtues, then we are going to find the women in, this, in the empire who are the most virtuous. And when we find the most virtuous woman out there, we're going to bring her in and she'll be your queen. Not, not really. Uh, chapter 2, this is what they do. Chapter 2, verse 2, this is their idea. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. so. So their idea is that they're going to have an empire-wide beauty contest, Persia's top model. And they are going to, to go out, and, and they are going to find the most beautiful young women in all of the kingdom. They're going to bring them in and have them stand in front of the king after going through a year of beauty treatments in the royal spa and cosmetics. So, so this is their plan. 
They're going to find the most gorgeous woman they can and the most beautiful woman in all the land. She's the one who's going to be the queen. So they get to it, and they, they start working on it because they want to make sure that they find the most beautiful woman they can for him. Because back in their day, guys were more interested in a woman's looks than in her, char- than in her character. Weird. And so, so they do this. They, they have this party in the, or this um, this. Uh, pageant, and the plan is that apparently the king's going to take them all on dates, and then at the last episode of the season, he's going to give a rose to one of them. <laughs> She's going to be his wife, and, and it's going to be official. So this is the guy who's running the world. Um, his empire was strong and powerful. It stretched to, all around the known world, and this is how he made decisions. And this is his cabinet. The wisest guys around them think, let's just have a beauty contest and she'll be the good wife. And so if you were someone who was a follower of God in Persia at this time, you'd look around and you'd say, this whole place is messed up. They worship all the wrong things. They worship false gods. They worship beauty. This king, he worships himself. Uh, The people who know God are so few and far between in this kingdom that it's like God's not even here. He's not active. He's not working. He's not doing anything. But as we're about to see, God is at work, and he is in control, even when people refuse to mention his existence. In fact, this whole book of Esther never even mentions the name of God. And the reason it does that is to point out to us that even in the places and even in the times where it doesn't seem like God's speaking, when it doesn't seem like he's active, he is active. He is working. He is doing things behind the scenes to get his glory, to build his people. He's always still at work, even when we don't see him working. And this is true out in society, but it's also true in our own lives. I mean, there are times where, uh, not just looking on the broad scale, but zooming in at our lives, we can have long seasons when we don't see how God's working. It seems like life's a mess, nothing makes sense. It seems like God walked away from the whole thing. And our life is going exactly the way we would expect life to go if God had just left it all together. But even during those times, God's doing way more than we can see. He's working behind the scenes when he's not working where everybody can see him because God is a God who is at work. So let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem along with the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So, so there's this guy who's there, and the way that he got there, this Jewish guy, was that he was carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, what happened periodically all throughout the Old Testament is God gave his people commands, the people of Israel, they disobeyed those commands, and then as discipline, God would allow foreign armies, foreign countries to come in, sack Jerusalem, sack the people, and even carry them away to their land. So that's how these Jews got to Persia. This is how they got out of their homeland and into this strange land that they didn't come from. And there's this one guy, Mordecai, who's there. And then verse 7, it says, He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So even though God's not mentioned here, even though we don't see how he could possibly be at work in this empire that's so pagan and so godless, Mordecai is looking for a beautiful, or I'm sorry, uh, Asuerus is looking for a beautiful wife, and it just so happens that there's this guy, Mordecai, who's connected to him, and he's raising this girl who is beautiful. 
So he's, he's connected to the king, and this Jewish orphan is about to have her whole life turned around. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So Esther enters the beauty contest, and immediately she's noticed. She's more beautiful than the other women, and so she starts advancing where she's, she's, she's got a really good shot at being the next queen. So we stop and we ask ourselves, how was it that she got there? How did Esther go from, from the rags to the riches? How did she go from being this orphan Jewish girl that nobody noticed, basically just a stranger in a strange land, to being a possible queen? By working real hard? No. By her good looks. So, so this is strange. She, she, we're seeing this girl, Esther, who seems like she's a hero of this story, but the only way she gets to where she's going is by her good looks. And then along the way, she's hiding her heritage and her faith because those things just weren't accepted by mainstream society in Persia. So she's hiding the fact that she's Jewish, hiding what she believes, and that's how she's getting where she's getting. That's how she's moving up in the ranks, and that's how she's going to have her life totally turned around. Not only that, she's doing all of this so that she can marry a guy who does not know or serve or follow the God of Israel, which was prohibited by God. So she's hiding her faith, using her body to get where she's going, and she's looking to marry a guy because he's rich and powerful and hoping that that will totally change her life. At this point of the story, Esther is really not a hero yet. In fact, she looks a lot like this empire around her. The empire around her had pushed God totally out of the picture, acted like God didn't exist. We look at Esther's life, and it seems to us like she's not acknowledging him a whole lot either. Now, to give her the benefit of the doubt, it may just be that she was obeying her uncle and doing, doing what he said. But either way, the way she got to where she got was not by any virtue of her own. It wasn't by doing anything. It was just by the fact that she was good-looking, and then she hid her faith. So at this point, she's not someone that is a moral example. And we're not going to sit down with our daughters and say, girls, this is how you get somewhere, somewhere in life. You need to be really good-looking. Um, number one. Number two, hide what you believe. Take your faith, stick it under a bushel. Don't make that Christianity thing too big a deal. Guys won't be into that. And number three, your goal in life should be to marry a rich guy. We've never had that conversation with our daughters. We've never taught them to live like this. So the way that Esther is living is not impressive at this point. Now, she turns around, and by the end of this story, she's got the courage of William Wallace. But right now, she's at best a little bit compromised and not any kind of great example. Um, this last week, I don't remember if it was Sunday or Monday, it was a, a hot day and it was day off and we had been uh, outside, had some friends over and we came in and turned on the TV and there was this show, uh, America's Ninja, American Ninja Warrior. Has anyone seen this show? And this is, a, this is basically a show where they set up this obstacle course where you can compete to be the best, newest American Ninja Warrior because America's known for our ninjas. And so... Um, <laughs> So, so, so these guys are competing, and they're running through a really hard and impressive obstacle course, and this one guy gets up to compete, and they do his bio, and he's a youth pastor. And anytime you see a Christian competing for one of these shows, there's that hope 
where hopefully they'll compete hard, but then really be humble, you know, give God some glory. They'll kind of act like Tim Tebow in that situation. But then there's also the dread that they might act like all the other Christians on all of these shows tend to act, which is just compromised and weird. And that was what happened. This, here's this guy. He's, he's a youth pastor. They did this bio. All the kids are praying for him to go out and be the American Ninja Warrior. He goes on the show. He does an excellent job in this obstacle course. He makes it all the way through, and a lot of people were not making it through. So he had the athletic ability. And then at the very end, he gets to the top, and I'm hoping, you know, for him to Tebow or something. He, nothing. He gets to the top, rips off his shirt, and starts flexing. Which was worse and more embarrassing than some of the non-youth pastor, non-Christian potential ninja warriors. And so sometimes you're watching TV and you just blush, like you're embarrassed for that guy. You're embarrassed for all of Christianity because the whole world just saw that this guy is what a Christian is. And, and we watched that story, and I don't even know why we watched that show. We watched it for 30 minutes, and we're definitely dumber now. But um, <laughs> we watched this and we say, man, he should have been more like Esther, who wanted her body didn't act like she believed what she believed, had shady motives. Actually, she wasn't much of an example yet at this point. She wasn't really all all that much different. She was trying to achieve something and was willing to hide some things to get there. Uh, Verse 16. This is how far she gets. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king, who likes a party, gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So she becomes queen. And she got there not by anything great that she did. Now, this parallels us a little bit. I mean, when we come to faith in Jesus, when we become the bride of Christ, it's not because we did anything. We didn't earn it. It's all by grace that we get to, w- get to where we are. But when we look at her story and we see some of the shadiness and the compromise, this isn't grounds for us to say, well, it's okay for me to compromise. It's okay for me to pursue shady methods. But it is grounds for us to realize that regardless of where we are right now, regardless of how we got where we are right now, even if we got to the place in life where we are by some bad decisions, by some sinful decisions, and even just some unwise decisions, regardless of how we got where we got, we're where God put us. Now, all of us in our lives, we have sinned along the road, and we should repent of that. Uh, We've all made unwise decisions. We can all look back and say, man, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. Um, it's hard to even categorize which, which could possibly be the dumbest decision out of all these decisions that got me to where I am right now. We look back and we see that road and it's easy to think, man, I have made so many wrong turns along the way that I'm absolutely doomed. There's no way that I could be used by God again because look at this decision I made. I didn't work hard enough in school. I chose the wrong major. I chose the wrong spouse. I made all these bad decisions and so now my life is so far outside of the will of God that I could never be used by God. And there's no way I could ever say that God has me where I am right now because look what it took for me to get here. God had Esther right where he wanted her. So you might look back and say, man, if I had chosen a different major, my life would have gone a lot differently. It would have been a lot better. But God has you where he wants you. Or sometimes we, we believe this when it comes to marriage. We, we have this idea that there's this one right spouse out there for everybody. And if you marry the wrong one, 
you just messed up your entire life because you didn't get the right one. And not only that, you messed up the entire life of six billion other people on the planet because someone else is going to marry your right one. And then they're going to, and you just messed up the whole world because you just weren't listening. You made a, a bad decision. You made an unwise decision. Look at your life. You've wrecked everything for everyone. You've got a second-rate life now. You're permanently outside the will of God. You could never be back on track. He could never use you. This book teaches us the opposite of that. This teaches us that even though there was some compromise to get her to where she was, even though there was probably some sin that needed to be confessed and repented of, God had her where he wanted her. And so this is true for us. God has us where he wants us. You're in the job you're in, you're in the marriage you're in, you're in the church you're in, you're in the the social situation you're in. You're there for a reason, and you're there by God's design, even if you can look back and see all kinds of sins along the way that got you there. Now, I'm not saying that if you're in a a sinful situation, like where you're in a job where you're stealing from people, that God wants you to be there. No, you should, should leave that job and do something else. But if you look at your life and you say, it would have gone so much better if I had done A instead of B and C instead of D. If I had made all these different decisions along the way, it would have been better, and then God would have used me. I would have been in the center of God's will. That's just not the way to look at it. We've made our mistakes. We've done unwise things. We've sinned. But God's not done with us, and he's got us where he wants us. And this is why he's got Esther where she is. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So here's this guy, Haman. This is the introduction of the second fragile male ego into the story here. And because he's been honored by the king, the king says, listen, everybody needs to bow down and worship this guy. Uh, he, he's awesome, he's got power, so when you see him coming down the street, you bow down, you pay some homage to him, and Uncle Morty won't do it. He's a, a follower of the God of Israel, and he'll obey the laws, he'll do whatever he can, but he won't worship someone who's not worthy of worship. So there is something right about this guy. He won't bow down, he won't worship him, and this just enrages Haman. So he said, not only am I going to take you out, I'm going to take out all of your people. Because if you've got some belief that keeps you from following the king... If you've got some cultural thing going on where you refuse to bow down when everyone in this empire is bowing down, we're going to have you executed. So let's skip to verse 8. Haman goes back and tattles. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it's not to, um, so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. 
And the king said to Haman, the money's given to you, the people also, do with them as it seems good to you. So here's the king who makes bad decisions, saying, yeah, you want to wipe these people out? You want to do some genocide or something? Yeah, here, take my signet ring. We're going to make a bill that says they all have to be wiped out. And once it's stamped with this ring, then it's a done deal. You can't take it back. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It has to happen. So I'm going to make this law that they all get wiped out just because you wanted me to. Yeah, whatever you think, that sounds good. So that's the plan. And news starts to go out that there's going to be a day when these people will be executed because of the God of Israel, because of their background, because of who they are. So chapter 4, verse 1, Uncle Morty learns about it. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Then he decides to let Esther know. So verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So Esther hears from Mordecai what's going to happen. And she says, you don't understand. You don't just go in and talk to the king. I know I'm his wife, but I've got, he's got other wives. He's got other priorities, and he hasn't called for her in 30 days, so apparently the king has moved on. Um, I don't know if he's doing another pageant or what's going on, but he's, he's starting to move on, it seems, from Esther. So she's got this idea, but man, I could go and try to talk to him, but he's got this law that if you interrupt him, he has you killed. Now, this is, um, this is really excellent time management skills on behalf of the king. Like, if you've got a day where it's, it's really busy and it seems like you get interrupted all day so you're not getting anything done, you could hire a secretary and, and get an iPhone. Or you could pass a law that says, if anyone interrupts me, we have them executed. And, and that works really well. Um, you know, if, if you want to keep your day streamlined, you want to make sure you're only meeting with people you want to meet with, just say, if someone comes in and bugs me, someone comes in and interrupts, we'll, we'll have them put to death. And so immediately the king's schedule was freed up. His days went a lot more smoothly. He had a whole lot less interruptions because nobody wanted to die. So, so that was, um, was how it worked. But the king wasn't unreasonable. He also had an exception that if someone came and he did want to talk to him at that moment, he could extend his scepter so that those guys who were standing there ready to cut their heads off wouldn't do it and they could come in and talk to him because he was a reasonable man. So, so that was the law. And so Esther sends back and says, you don't understand. I can't just go and talk to him. It's not a guarantee that I'll be able to talk to him. I might die if I go and I interrupt this guy. So Mordecai sends back, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Esther hears from Mordecai that maybe she's in the palace for this reason. 
Maybe she's been put there by God for this time to be the one who rescues these people from death. And Mordecai says, I know they're going to get rescued because God's made promises to these people. He's, he's, he's going to be faithful to his people. They're going to get rescued from somewhere, but you're there now, so maybe God puts you there for right now. So Esther says, all right, get everybody to fast. I'll fast, and in three days, I'm going to go in, I'm going to talk to the king, and if I perish, I perish. So here's the question. How did she know that it was God's will for her to go talk to the king? And how did she know that it was all going to go well? How did she know that it was going to work out and that she wouldn't die? And the answer is, at this point, she didn't know that. But still, she made a decision to act. And this is really important, because a lot of times we have this idea that God is going to tell us ahead of time everything that he wants us to do, and if we follow in those footsteps and do exactly what he wants us to do in every situation, then everything will go well for us. You know, if this were the way we would normally teach it, we would say, Esther, here's what you need to do. You need to pray until you hear from God, until you hear God's voice telling you this is what you're supposed to do, until some sign shows up in the sky and you know that this is what you have to do, until you know for sure, you pray and you wait. And then when you hear from God, then you act because you know things will go well because God's told you what to do. But that's not at all what's going on here. Now, now, first of all, I believe that God has revealed his will to us. In the scripture, he's told us what we should do. And we never have to wonder, does God want me to lie in this situation? You know, does God want me to sin in this situation? No, he never does. We never have to doubt that. We never have to wonder that. We never have to think that God's going to lead us to do something that's against the clear teaching of his Bible. So what we have in the Bible is always definitely the will of God. But there are also lots of times where decisions are put in front of us that the Bible speaks to, but doesn't necessarily narrow down a couple of decent options. You know, for example, here are two colleges that you get accepted to. Either one you could go to. Either one's affordable. Either one is a good choice for the kingdom of God, for God's work in your life. Either one is good. So do you just pray and wait until God tells you which one to go to? Does he guarantee that he will? I don't think he does make that guarantee. Now, I do think sometimes he does lead in those situations. Sometimes he does lead in a supernatural way to get us to do something when there are a couple of things where there's, there's not a clear moral decision to be made. But he doesn't always. Sometimes two good choices are put in front of us. We pray, and we haven't heard anything from him. You know, you're wondering, you know, here's this girl, and she's godly, she loves Jesus, she's a qualified wife, but I just don't know. I just don't know if I should marry her, so I'm waiting on God. I'm waiting for God to speak. You pray and pray and pray and stretch that engagement out for nine years, and, um, and he never speaks, so you wait and you don't act. Or here are these two jobs that are put in front of you. Both would be good jobs to take. Here are two majors. You could declare either one. You would do fine in either one. You could use either one for God's service in this world. But he doesn't speak. So what do you do? Pretty often we have these decisions in front of us and we say, I'm going to pray and wait for God to tell me what to do. And then when he doesn't tell us what to do, we're paralyzed. We don't move. We don't act. We don't do anything because we're waiting for just the right situation to come along, just the right person to marry, just the right job, just the perfect school to go to, just the perfect church to commit to. We're always just waiting for everything to be perfect, for all the steps in front of us to be laid out by God. And he never promises that he's always going to lay out all those steps and tell us ahead of time which way he wants us to go. Sometimes he does, but often he doesn't. Now, does a will of God for our lives exist where he directs our steps? Absolutely. But almost always, he doesn't tell us ahead of time 
where those steps are going to go. The way that usually works is we look back and we see the way he's worked in our lives and we say, God, that was amazing how you directed my steps. Usually he doesn't show us, here are the next five steps to take unless we're hearing directly from the scripture. Those things happen, but they're rare. And I think what we see here is that we need to act anyways. We need to do something, even when we're not hearing a specific voice to do something, we do need to keep life moving. You know, it seems spiritual for us to just say, I'm waiting on God to direct me, and then we don't act and don't do anything. But that's not at all how Esther is at this point. She says, I may perish. I just might die. I don't know how this is going to go, but I have to be faithful, which means I have to act. In fact, if you want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, you know, this is where Esther really does start to be an example. We need to learn to be like this, where we pray, where we weigh decisions. You see the going back and forth with Mordecai, talking things over. Um, it's good to pray about things. It's good to get counsel and wise people speaking into your life. It's good to go to the scriptures and find every place that the scriptures could speak into the decision that we're making. But then we need to learn to act even when we don't have a guaranteed outcome from God. Listen to Hebrews. This is, um, this is the Faith Hall of Fame where he's describing all these faithful people and the way things went for them when they were faithful to God. In Hebrews 11, verse 32, he says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So we love to stop reading there. And you say, you see what will happen if you have faith? If you have faith, you're going to conquer armies. Dead people are going to be raised. Uh, there's going to be victory and triumph. And the life of faith, the way that always works, is everything will go well for you because look at all these people. Following, following Jesus and living a life of faith means that you are going to be awesome, you're going to do awesome things, and you're going to prosper. We love that life of faith. And that's true. He does make a life of faith go that way sometimes. But it's important not to just stop mid-verse. We need to keep reading here because the next thing he says is, some were tortured. Now, is this the, the not faithful people? No, he's describing faithful people in this whole list. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So they're broke and a lot of them die. So in this passage, describing faithful people, he says there are some faithful people who have stopped the mouths of lions. God has made those people prosper. And there are faithful people who are broke and obscure, and they're tortured, and they die. Some people thrive, some people get stoned. Does God have a wonderful plan for your life? Yes, he does. And the wonderful plan he had for Isaiah's life was for Isaiah to be stuffed in a log and cut in half. And God was absolutely faithful to him all the way. Isaiah is with that God today because that God's been faithful and walks with him and has a plan for your life where he will be with you but it doesn't mean that everything's going to go well. 
It doesn't mean that everything's going to go the way you want it to, but sometimes what we do is we wait for God to reveal to us what steps I can take so that I can be in that first category. Because I want to stop the mouths of lions. I want to see foreign armies go to flight. I want to subdue kingdoms. I want to do these incredible things and live this incredible life for God. I want to have that. But I don't want to be in that second category. But the Bible says that when we're faithful, we may end up in either one of those categories and we may not know ahead of time. Esther didn't. She said, I'm going to go talk to the king and I just might die. I might perish when I go in there. I might look like an idiot. I might, I might lose everything. So she's putting it all on the line. She's risking it all at this point just to be faithful. She sees a need in front of her. She hasn't heard a specific revelation from God, but she's going to act. And this is what a lot of our Christian life needs to be like. Not where we wait around for a guaranteed outcome, but where we see a need, we pray about it, and then we make decisions and do things. And when Esther does that, she really becomes a hero. Yeah, we'll see a lot, Christian guys especially, a lot of guys sometimes in their 20s who will wait for 10 years for the will of the Lord to be revealed to them before they get a direction for career, before they get a direction for college, before they think about getting married. It's just this waiting process. And we think that that's spiritual, but Esther, who was pretty spiritual at this point, she acted. And sometimes, sometimes our guys just need to man up and be more like Esther. Um, they, they need to, to start making decisions and, and keep things moving forward. Um, and, and we look at her, and she becomes this, this hero because she does something. Now, as we read this story, and by the way, as we read any stories in the Old Testament, any heroes that the Bible devotes any amount of time to, we read them, and they don't quite do it for us because all of these heroes are flawed. You, know, you read about Abraham, and, and he's a man of faith, but, man, there's some weird stuff that went on when he gave his wife to, to Pharaoh. Um, that, that doesn't seem like a heroic thing to do. Moses, this great hero, doesn't even get to go into the promised land. He has to die on top of a mountain. We, we read about these heroes, and every one of them just, just leaves us like, that's not a great story. It doesn't really end well for these people. The heroes really aren't heroes. And even when we look into Esther's life, she does some great and heroic things. But man, the way that she got there seemed pretty shady. So what's the reason for that? But when Jesus told us how to interpret the whole Bible, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it's these scriptures that speak of me. So when we read through the Bible, we hear these stories, they leave us sometimes with a longing for a better story. I'd like a better hero than that. I'd like someone who's not so shady to come and, and take these risks and lay down their lives so that people could be rescued. I want a full-blown, non-flawed hero. And the reason that we want that is because we've been given this heart where the law of God is written on it, and we have a desire for the hero that only Jesus is. And the reason these Old Testament stories don't do it for us is because they're not meant to. They're meant to point to a bigger hero. So Esther comes, and she risks her life, she risks her spot in the palace, she risks her wealth, risks her reputation, and she does it all knowing that she just might perish so that her people could be rescued and saved. Jesus comes, and he's a true and better Esther where he doesn't risk anything because God, who knows the outcome of everything, doesn't take risks. He doesn't risk anything. He willfully, knowing he's going to perish, lays it all down. He lays down his life and he dies. He perishes, he's buried, he rises again, and he does it all so that we could have life. 
That just like Esther was there to save these Jews from the situation where there was wrath coming on them and they were going to be killed, Jesus came to save us from the wrath of his Father that was going to be coming on us, who did perish, willfully laid down his life so that we could trust in him and have everlasting life. And that's the story beneath all the stories of the Bible. That's the story that this story points to. That, yeah, Esther's great and does some great things here, but there's a truer and better Esther, one who doesn't sin, one who's not shady. Esther has to be talked into this whole thing by Mordecai. Jesus doesn't have to be talked into the whole thing. He just comes and lays down his life, perfectly submitted to the will of his Father. In every way that Esther falls short, Jesus rises to the occasion. Because the ultimate hero in our lives and the ultimate hero in Scripture is Jesus. He died so that we could have life He's that true and better Esther who came to reveal the heart of his father to us, to show us the father's love, to pay for our sin, who came into the world for such a time as this and then rescued us. And this is really the heart of the Christian message. A lot of times you can sit through a church service and you hear this message where you hear, Esther was a hero, so you need to go out and be a hero just like Esther is. And we can go out and try, and there are some good examples for us to follow for sure. But what always ends up happening is we fall short. We go out and we try to do these heroic things and we get cowardly. We try to live good lives and we sin. We fall short. We do all these things. And if we look at the Bible just as a list of examples to follow, we're going to live really disillusioned lives. If we come to the Bible and we think the message of the Bible is that I can go out and be awesome now, we're going to be disappointed when we live our lives and we realize I'm not that awesome. But the message of the Bible is not go out and be more awesome this week. The message of the Bible is we've failed and the one who is awesome saved us. You know, we're just sort of like the other Jews who were living in this kingdom who, who had this cloud of wrath hanging over us and then the Savior stepped in and rescued us. So the message of Christianity is not do good things and get God to accept you. It's not work really hard to get the king to like you. It's not any of that stuff. The message of Christianity is the message that Jesus came to us. That he died, he was buried, and he rose again so that whoever trusts in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're here today and you say, you know, I haven't been to church in a long time. I thought it was all about cleaning up my life and getting God to like me. It's not the Christian message at all. Christian message is that Jesus took the punishment you deserved. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And if you trust him, you'll have everlasting life. And that's good news. That means that we don't do any work to commend ourselves to God. We don't have to struggle. We don't have to become religious. We just trust in him. Now, once we trust in him, he does change our lives, and he makes us live in different ways. But it's not by living in a certain way that we get God to like us. It's by the cross of Jesus. And so if you're here today and you want to to turn to that God Turn from trusting in your own works. Turn from trusting in your own efforts. Turn from trusting in your own heroism or your own awesomeness. And trust in Jesus who is the hero. Trust that he died and was buried and rose again and cry out to him. The Bible promises whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you can cry out in whatever words you want. Say, God, I know how sinful I am. I know that I deserve your judgment. I know I deserve your wrath. But I believe in your Savior. Jesus, I believe that you died for me. You were buried and you rose again. Jesus, thank you for perishing in my behalf so that I don't have to perish. And as Christians, we believe that all of it was accomplished for us by Jesus. That's why we're right with God. That's why we can worship him. That's why we can approach him. Not because we've done anything to earn it.